I went into Roots Cafe the other day and I ran into a friend of mine who I happen to know is clean and sober. And he was sitting with his nephew, who I also learned is in sobriety. And I told him about our podcast, Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. And he just loved the title and said, oh, I want that on a t-shirt. And I said, well... stories about addiction we might oh stories about recovery too mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart sensitive people into liars thieves gluttons and whores liars and thieves and gluttons and whores oh liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores, the show that brings you stories from both the dark side and the light side of addiction and recovery. And today I am doing another co-hosted show with my guest co-host for season two, Lori Jones. And I'm so excited. Today, we're going to follow up on the interview with Sister Ellen, the naughty nun. Mm -hmm. So welcome. Hello, hello. <laughs> and, you know, the interview with Sister Ellen was one of the actual stories that inspired me to do Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores for a couple of reasons. One is that she was addicted to so many multiple addictions, including gambling and food addiction and smoking cigarettes and alcoholism. And I think there was even, I don't know how to say it, but the addiction to being a nun and being dependent on the convent and not having your own personal agency to make certain decisions. Even though mm -hmm. Sister Ellen seemed to rise in the role of being a nun to being the mother superior of a convent, which is actually when she gambled away all the convent's money is when she was the mother superior. <laughs> I Again, it's like, it cracks me up and I think that to actually live that experience for Sister Ellen wasn't funny at all. And, you know, must have been really desperate to be in that responsible position and traveling all over the world doing the work that she was doing and having an expense account, um, not needing to, you know, work for her uh living i don't mean that just like income wise but for you know all the nuns were housed and everything mm -hmm. was an expense account and that made it so easy for her to close her eyes to what she was actually doing yeah yeah but this is what i want to say so after listening to the interview and listening to sister ellen 
I am ready for the made for TV movie of this. I am like, I'm so ready to watch this unfold in a minute mini series. So sister Ellen, if you are listening, I, like this, you know, this is better than fiction. And, and you know, what I want to say, there's a couple of things. She was at her peak in her career. So if she becomes the mother superior, like she's, she's peaked in her career. Like she, she has reached that level, you know, of what she aspired to. And this is when things were just really getting more than interesting, right? The things that she was doing. Nancy, I want to go back to the beginning of the interview when, when um, Sister Ellen said something that really resonated with me. And she said that the one of the reasons that she wanted to get into this um, profession or she wanted to be a nun is because she wanted to be good. Yeah, like she used that word. She wanted to be good. And it just made me wonder, because I'm always about root cause, right? So, like, did she not think she was good? Like, she, you know, she wanted to be good and she felt that, you know, if she went into the ministry and if she was, like, a nun, that it would be good. And clearly, you know, she she just had a very interesting past with all the, with all of this addiction. I mean, there's a lot. Let, let's talk about how many things she identified that she was addicted to. Well, and, and before we even do that, I think that lovely place that you were just touching on is the good and bad. You know, how many times have I heard in 12-step meetings that we are not good, pe we are not bad people trying to get good, we are sick people trying to get well, you know, and here is Sister Ellen when she told me that what got her to start on a journey of recovery was that the convent was trying to get her to go to rehab which she called the rehab for naughty nuns so here's mm -hmm. the good or naughty you know is there an inner child aspect to all of that for sister ellen that she needed to be a nun in order to be good and then when she was a nun, she was doing all these naughty, bad things like gambling and smoking cigarettes and drinking and using drugs and using food as an addiction, which I understand when you're in a convent is very hard to do. Mm -hmm. It was a cover. It was a cover. Like her being a nun was a cover for all of these things that really she was struggling with. And you know, it's dark. We talk about the light side and the dark side. It's dark It could because I can't imagine when I was listening to her, first of all, you know, I had to turn up the volume because she's so soft-spoken and, and her beautiful accent. And she's so soft-spoken and she's talking about all these things that she did. I have to say, because it's not funny, but it was, but when she was talking about getting caught smoking and how she was just saying, no, that she wasn't, that she wasn't smoking. She clearly was standing there with a, you know, a, a, a cigarette smoking and somebody saw her, but yet she was gaslighting them, telling them no, that they actually did not see what they actually saw, that she wasn't smoking. So, you know, I don't know what your thoughts are about this, but, I, you know, for me, I think that 
sometimes like addicts, like when you, when you get away with certain things, like if nobody's calling you out on your business, you know, when you're getting away with it, then you're just continuing to, you're continuing the pattern, you're continuing it. And it was when somebody made her sit down and actually like really take a look at her own stuff that I, that just for myself, just listening, it seems like that's when it got real to her. Like, oh no, because she wasn't willing to like sit down and even look at her bank statements and figure out how much damage, you know, that she's, that she had caused, you know, she's, she was in denial about it. And which is, which is, that's what addicts do. We deny, deny, deny. But I mean, she was flat out gaslighting the other nun. <laughs> and again, like I said, I want to see this. I want to see this on TV. I want to see this in a mini series. Come on. Hadn't thought yet about a mini series. I definitely have thought about a book, you know, and yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, and along with the um, Matt, who you know took off on a child's pink bicycle through the campground when he was found stealing from the other campsites, and the police, you know, circled around his tent, you know, like, like. I can just imagine this big guy with tattoos, you know, and a heroin addict yeah. was stealing, trying to get away from the police on a, a girl's pink bicycle. It just, yeah. I mean, that's such a visual that I would want. It is. See. It is. It's hard times. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's hard times. It's like the ridiculousness in addiction sometimes, you know, and the lengths that people will go to cover it, to, to, to ride away from it, to say, no, no, I wasn't smoking. I know you saw a cigarette and you saw smoke and you saw it, no, you know, was, you saw it coming out of, I know you think you saw, I know you think you saw, <laughs> you, know. you think you saw it, but you didn't. And so, yeah, that's the light side of it where you can laugh about it. And, you know, and I was laughing along when I was listening and then there was also a dark side and a, and a side where I just felt very sad for her because I was thinking about how stressful it must have been to be holding on to all these secrets. And she's trying to fix things and it's just getting worse. And that must have just felt so overwhelming and so terrible. Yes. And I... I know from spending some time with her in her own home that, you know, at the end of the interview, she said that she has not been gambling for just three years. You know, her overall sobriety has been three years. So I know that she hasn't been drinking for more than a decade and other addictions. And it just, it, it startled me in a way, and it's also, it's true of recovery that the addictions that aren't so pervasive or well-known in our culture, that are more actually even some of them supported by our culture, mm. are the ones that you let go of during the journey of sobriety after a while. Mm. It takes a while to to admit to things like food addiction and to gambling and to workaholism, mm. which is the one that I'm really referring to our whole culture supports 
yeah. working 70 hour work weeks or never being home with your family or yeah. how convenient, how convenient, like really let's go there because how convenient is it that an addiction like workaholism is just socially accepted? Very convenient for us to say, yeah, that's okay. That's like somebody's, you know, working their ass off and they're getting it done and they have no work-life balance, but you know what? They're doing a good job and they're doing a good job for us. And, and those things really aren't addressed. It, it's actually rewarded. And so I think it makes it really difficult because, you know, you think about, you know, let's just kind of like go over the two things because you think about alcoholism, like nobody's rewarding you for, you know, the, the bad choices that you're making and, you know, you're digging your hole and nobody's rewarding you for that. And so, you know, it's easily, it's easy to understand, you know, why you would need to stop with um, being a workaholic. I think it's very um I don't know. It, I think it's more complicated because it's actually rewarded. And I think that's part of the addiction. You know, I, I'm going to beg to differ with you a little bit around the alcoholism not being socially rewarded, because I work with a lot of young people in their early mid 20s that are letting mm -hmm. go of alcohol and drug addiction at that time. And everyone around them is still using. So mm. there is that need for the willingness to let go of that social reward and support when everybody else is still drinking. And, you know, my brother who um, co-hosted the first season of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons and Whores with me, um, one time when we were doing a, a show together, it occurred to him that, oh, he was 26 when he got sober and I was 24 when I got sober. And I think it's part of that age group that there is a reward for drinking and a smoking pot and drug addiction. And so I think there are different rewards. The fact that the workaholism can be so easily justified when you can be really out of control with it. And when alcoholism or drug addiction is so out of control, it's harder to mask it or or justify it. And then it gets really unacceptable in your culture. Mm. Where I know yeah. my sister was, you know, willing to look at, well, actually it came after her retirement. She was talking to someone about um, being a recovering addict and her retirement. And they said, um, well, what was it like for you to, did you experience withdrawal when you were um, giving up the other addictions in your life? And she was like, oh yeah, you know? And then <laughs> they said, well, what you're experiencing now in retirement is withdrawal from your workaholism. Oh, wow. And I thought that was really good and um, something that she was aware of and not trying to fill all the time or how working to excess can really heighten our self-esteem. Mm -hmm. 
feeling needed, feeling uh, purposeful with your time. And if you are newly retired or you need to take a leave of absence from work or you're just with awareness trying to cut back that craziness, it can feel very empty, which I think is a real um, common feeling among withdrawal from any addiction is a mm -hmm. feeling of emptiness. Yeah, I, I am definitely like a self-proclaimed workaholic for sure. And I can relate to what you just said about um, your sister and sort of a reaction to being retired and not having that. Because sometimes when I go on vacation, it takes me a few days to kind of click in. It takes me a few days to sort of get out of the mode. Because let's just face it, I like a lot of things. There's a lot of things I'm interested in and I take on a lot because I like a lot of things. And so I don't want to miss out. I want to, I want to enjoy everything. So, you know, when I do something, I do it like 120% and then, you know, and then I burn out quickly. And so um, I can certainly relate to that because it takes a little bit to unwind. You know, when I think about workaholism and like how it affects other people, the, the first thought that came to my mind is, you know, like that dad who just works too much and the kids are like you know he's not going to the game and you know he's not you know showing up for things and he's not home for dinner that's like the vision that we have but then you know after listening to, to um the last podcast you know we can understand also that it's about like a little nun who is a workaholic and everything's falling apart at the seams and it's not always um it's not always sort of the uh, image of something that maybe we think it is. I don't know if that makes sense, but it does. And it reminds was... me of a recent webinar I saw that was put on by Fidelity and it was just women in prosperity and finance. And one person asked during the Q and A about work-life balance. And one of these very productive, um, you know, mid 30s, maybe women on the panel said, started laughing and said, there is no such thing as work-life balance. And I so mm -hmm. appreciated her answer. She said, you are always out of balance. And when you recognize that you're out of balance, you, here's the time when you need to do something that's balancing. And she really brought us all back to mindfulness, you know, exercise, mm -hmm. take a deep breath, take a walk you know, it, all these things to do to return to a state of balance that will last only momentarily because there is no such thing as work life balance. Mm, yeah. And then I, I want to write that to a colleague about that, a male colleague who said, oh yeah, it's like the tree pose in yoga. You know, you never quite get the balance and you can only hold it for a few, I can only hold it for a few seconds where you've got one leg up with the foot against the other thigh, you know, and your hands, if you're lucky, are above your head in the mm -hmm. tree pose. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, right when you think you've got it, you lose it and you have to put your other foot down. <laughs> yeah. You know what I want to say about that? Because you brought up the tree pose. Think about a tree, though. And I'm like looking outside out my window. Think about a tree. It's always just kind of moving a little bit. Always moving. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, always moving, always adjusting. I think that's a good metaphor because if you're thinking about work-life balance, it is fluid. And I actually like that we have to readjust. 
Yeah, you know, we, we do. Like sometimes we have hard stops though. You know, sometimes we, you know, the universe like has a really funny sense of humor to kind of, uh, you know, throw a monkey wrench into everything to, to force you to stop, um, you know, but it's all fluid. And, and, and this is a good reminder. I mean, that's why, I, I, you know, I love having these conversations because somebody could be listening today that just needed to hear that. Like it's fluid. You can adjust. You can pivot at any time. Right. I think one of the other things that just came into my consciousness that I'd like listeners to hear, too, because I get asked this question a fair amount. Like, should I stop smoking when I'm attempting to stop drinking? Should I oh. stop drinking when I'm attempting to stop smoking weed? Should I stop smoking weed if I'm attempting to stop heroin? You know, it's like, um, or do I take them one at a time? Or do I look at what is the most serious addiction take, you know, that threatens to take me out of this world and deal with that first? And I pretty much lean in that direction. Like, let's look at the addiction that brought you to this, what often addicts refer to as rock bottom. Mm -hmm. And then start there. I also have enough knowledge to say to people, you really don't want to do withdrawal more often than you have to. So if you're willing to give up smoking cigarettes when you're giving up alcohol, then you don't have to go through withdrawal from the absence of alcohol and again, go through the withdrawal of the absence of cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen people before who quit drinking and they chain smoke. So I was actually curious about that answer that you were gonna give too. Like, you know, you just, give everything up all at the same time and just suffer through it? Or, you know, what What do you see as most successful? And I, I remember going myself to my um, spiritual advisor when early on in sobriety and saying, I think I need to stop driving my car because I'm a person with the pedal to the metal every time. And she was like, that's ridiculous, Nancy. You know, it's like coming to a complete stop at, at a speed bump. No, you just need to slow down. Like, you know, I just was trying to look at my entire life that was unmanageable and think, well, what do I need to do? I can't even drive a car and not get a speeding yeah. ticket. I'm like, yeah. And the fact that I got speeding tickets and didn't talk my way out of them by, you know, I had blonde hair back when I was 24 and I have blue eyes and I could just bat those big blue eyes at the police officer and get away with a warning and not a ticket. And I got sober. I started getting tickets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, you know, getting out of them. I wasn't that conning my way out of things. I was just, oh my God, do you know what I just remembered? I remember being um, a young teen. So I had to be over 16 because I was driving and I had to be less than 17 because I went to college when I was 17. And I was looking at a college in Vermont and my friend and I were getting high and drinking and we had no place to stay. And we had gone to put up a tent on private property and the police were called and we were, you know, thrown off the property and it was just woods, you know, it didn't look like it. 
anybody owned it. And the police took us to the police station and said that we could um, sleep in the police car in the back, in the lot. And I was like, oh, okay. And then they drank with us. What? <laughs> I just remember <laughs> splitting this alcohol. I think it was a bottle of vodka with the police. And oh, that's kind my. Of crazy that I, you know, when I was young, I could get away with just the talk myself in into and out of the craziest situations. All right. That is a made for TV movie. <laughs> what the heck? You and your girlfriends are going to go camping. Next thing you know, you're just going to camp out in the police station parking lot and oh, sleep and in the was, cop car and you get and you get a drink with the police while you're at it. Yeah, just, and that was yeah. the thing is the the one of the police officers came out really early in the morning. Like, I don't even think this is really early to me now, but it might have been like seven o'clock and said the police captain was on his way in and we had to leave. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> There might have been there might have been some bad decisions made on behalf of the police. I just want to say that I have to. I'm going to tell you a funny little story. It's 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 really not funny at all. But when I think back, it's kind of funny. And that is that um, my dad was um, in law enforcement, and he was the chief deputy of the county that I lived in. And I was driving in my car, and I must have been like. 16 or 17, I want to say. And this is bad. So nobody do this if you're listening. Don't do what I do or what I did. But my one of my best friends and I, we were in the car and we had beer in the car and we were driving and we were kind of driving like the back roads and things. And my friend was drinking and I pulled out onto the main road to head into town and I got pulled over. The blue lights came on behind me. And I got pulled over. I told my friend, hide your beer. I think she was drinking a beer. Hide your beer. And she did. And when the cop came up um, to the window, it was my father. Yeah, it was my dad. And he was stopping me just to say hello because he noticed that it was me. And he just wanted to say, hi, what are you doing? He wanted to make sure we were wearing our seatbelts. And... um yeah, there was actually a lot more going on for him to be worried about other than us, you know, wearing our seatbelts. And he would have been so upset. He would have been very upset and he would have been very disappointed had he known what was really happening. He probably would have taken us to jail, actually, probably make an example of us. Um, but yeah, that was one of my encounters. And just like, you know, I was grateful that it was my dad. And I was also pretty frightened that that had happened and I took that as a wake-up call and I never did that again like I, I wasn't one to like you know have alcohol in, in the car but I did that one time but like you can't make that stuff up it was my dad it, you know and it's like we're you know, drinking just, underage <laughs> I was just thinking about that in the movie too you're like hi dad <laughs> yeah it's like oh my gosh oh my god and I didn't know it was him until he came up to the window and he's like hey and I was just mortified. And I think, you know, I, I think I lost a couple of years off my life, but he would have been so mad. And, um, and so probably it's a good thing he didn't know about it back then. Um, but that's just, again, like bad decisions. 
bad decisions made by, you know, myself who, you know, at that point in time in my life, I probably wasn't making good decisions, but yeah, that is bad. Like, yeah. Talk about um, back to the nun, how she wanted to be good. That was not good. Not good. Yeah. All right. Anything else that we need to say to wrap up this wonderful show? I, I'm, I'm thinking about titles, like maybe the good versus bad, or are we bad trying to get good? Maybe that's it. Yeah. I think, um, I think overall, I think overall people are good and they want to be good and yeah, people are good and they want to be good. And it's, you know, I, I feel bad that, um, sister Ellen had to go through all of that, but thank goodness she's on the other side now and that she can talk to you about it and we can have a good laugh about it. Great. Thank you so much, Lori, for being here with me today. So fun. Thank you. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator Nancy Adair.